We've been uh, looking at the Gospel of Mark together when I've been preaching. This is probably the last time we'll look at Mark uh, this year. Uh, so before we pick it up in the new year. Uh, so we're going to look at a, a bigger chunk today. Um, starting in chapter 2 and verse 18. So the, uh, the scripture references, the, the passage will come up on the, uh, on the screen as well, so you can follow there. Two, here we go. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So here we are still relatively early on in the, uh, the ministry of Jesus. He has uh, been announcing good news. He's been bringing in the kingdom of God. He's been uh, teaching. He's been healing. He's even been casting out demons. Uh, he's been seeking God. More and more disciples are coming to him. He's been partying at Levi's house. And uh, what we see here in this chapter is a is kind of growing tension, uh, controversy really, and we saw that a little bit last time that Jesus went along uh, to Levi's house. Levi was a tax collector, and there's a party of tax collectors and sinners. And for some, this is like this just just isn't appropriate. Call yourself a rabbi? What on earth are you doing there? And so what Jesus was doing was was completely new. We'll see in a little while. It's it's new wine. It's a new thing. It's a Uh, a new piece of cloth Um, and that doesn't match with what many experience or many expect of the spiritual life and so what we see here is the controversy grows as the tension mounts Uh, 
we see questions, questions, questions. Or really, three questions. There are some questions which are, which are genuine. They've got a good point. And uh, it's good to ask a genuine question. There are other questions that have got a, an edge to them. They're hostile. They're a means of trying to discredit. And there are some questions which are just so insightful that cut straight to the heart. A question that's got the power to change the way you see life. And we'll see each of these questions uh, being asked as really Jesus polarizes opinion. Many people flock to him. Many people are eager for him. Many people just desire to follow him. Others are repelled. Others are turned away. Others are aghast. Grace, in other words, gets a reaction. Some people are softened. Some people are hardened. And so we're going to look at three questions as this uh, as this passage uh, unfolds uh, this morning. And first, we're going to look at the question of fasting in verse 18. This is the question that some people ask um, in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Who are some people? Sounds a bit vague. Well, I think some people are called that because they're not disciples, at least they're not disciples yet, and they're not Pharisees. They're not disciples of John, they're not disciples of Jesus, but they're observing all these different groups in Israel seeking to renew God's people. There are loads of different religious sects, uh, religious groups that are kind of banding together to try and refresh, to try and rejuvenate. Um, the nation of Israel. And they're kind of seeing, well, in, in some ways they're quite similar. In some ways they're different. And I kind of think some people are just plain undecided. They're not quite sure. What is, what's the best group if they're considering joining one? And perhaps for some people here today, that could be actually where you're at. Kind of just undecided, aware that there are a whole variety of different groups different philosophies, even different religions, different ways of doing life, and kind of thinking, well, they might all have some merit to them. Um, They're all seeking one way or another to um, find a better way. And I've got a a, a hunger and a thirst and a desire for something, but I, I don't know which is the right way to go. And so they ask what I think is kind of a a genuine question. It's a question about fasting. They observe that actually a lot of these groups fast. They go without food for a day or even more. And they see, but Jesus and his disciples are different. So so why is there this, this lack of fasting? Fasting was something that people would have done as a way of coming before God and saying, God, things aren't as they should be. God, would you come? Would you come and renew your people? Would you come and strengthen our nation? Would you do something new? We're in desperate need of you, O God. And so people would, uh, people would fast. And Jesus is not anti-fasting. He's not against it. Indeed, in Matthew, uh, chapter six and verse, uh, 16 is an occasion where he actually teaches on the subject. And says to his followers there, uh, in Matthew 6 verse 16, When you fast, 
Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I'll tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So we can see that Jesus was saying, sometimes it will be appropriate to fast. That sometimes it will be appropriate to, to call on God, in that way and say God come and come and sort this out come and do something new Uh, come and help come and strengthen come and answer our uh, deepest longings and therefore it's kind of there's an element of sorrow an element of pain that can be accompanied uh, with that kind of recognizing things aren't as they should be oh God send your kingdom uh, in other words so Jesus is not against fasting indeed he fasted for himself Um, but what these people can see is it's just something different. Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. It's actually the opposite. We've just seen in a few verses before, they've been feasting. They've been going to a party. And this just doesn't seem to stack up. Um, surely this isn't a time for celebration where Jesus is saying, yes, it, it is, in fact. And sometimes what can happen, um, I think with, with friends and relatives, sometimes I've been in conversation with, they've said, well... It's like I came along uh, and it was the worship. I don't know what it is, but there's something about the way you worship. It just, I don't know why, but I was crying. Or just came to, it, it, it undid me. I was observing something different about this group. I don't see it somewhere else. I don't taste that somewhere else. There's a, a joy I can't put my finger on. And I know it's not all an easy street. And there's there's challenging circumstances for all of us. But what I see about you is... A joyfulness, and I'm 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 kind of drawn towards it. Sometimes that's how God can grab people's uh, attention, but for others, it's just like, well, no, it's not right. Surely, to be spiritual is to be, dare I say, slightly glum. To be spiritual, to be really kind of worthy, to be a good person means that basically you're climbing the ladder of despair, or of sorrow, or seriousness or sobriety so it just doesn't seem congruent to kind of be worshiping god and then see kind of just people just rubbing shoulders and cracking a joke or something no 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 this is a this must be just a holy moment shh shh this is worship whisper it's like the spiritual library that can be kind of just expectations for for some um even for us kind of sometimes i think an absence of joy can seem like well that's the more mature thing uh, if you've been progressing in your faith, you will have a frown because you're just aware of the depths of God. And so people are kind of seeing Jesus and they're seeing his disciples and saying, well, in this regard, they're totally different. John's disciples, okay, good guys, but that's kind of their vibe. And the Pharisees, we kind of steer clear of them, but that's kind of their vibe as well. Just very uh, serious, very somber. Well, when one of Jesus' disciples later uh, wrote a letter uh, to believers in uh, 1 Peter. He wrote this. He's saying in 1 Peter 1 verse 8, Though you have not seen him, that is Jesus Christ, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter's writing to Christians 
facing a hard time, but he's saying, you know, you've not even seen Jesus, you guys. I got to spend time with him personally in the flesh. You've not seen him, but you love him. You don't see him now, but you know him, and you're filled with a joy that can't even be put into words. And it's, it's glorious. He's saying, that's, that's the hallmark of the disciples of Jesus, isn't it? Surely, that's the hallmark of people who've had their sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, who've received this good news, and are just blown away by the fact that God in Christ accepts me. I can, I can know him, I can be in a relationship with a God that I can't even see, but he's present by his spirit. Isn't this awesome? Obvious. Or are there some things that squash our joy? Are there some joy killers in our midst that we need to run through? Here are just maybe a few things that can sometimes be in the mix that can have the effect of squashing the joy of God's people. One is living with additional rules and expectations. But what do I mean by that? Well, even in the law, in the Old Testament, for John's disciples and the Pharisees, there weren't that many days of fasting that were prescribed. Initially, there was one on the Day of Atonement, and there were maybe a couple other uh, days of fasting through the course of the year. Um, the rest of the time, it was a case of, no, you, you can if you want to. You can when you feel the moment is right, when there's a particular situation you want to call on God for. That's the time to fast, but it's kind of up to you. It's not something you're being told that you must, or precisely when. But what's happened here is almost a sense of extra expectations. New rules have been added in. And, um, and so Pharisees would have fasted two days a week. Um, and who knows how often uh, the disciples of John were fasting as well. This is a sense of, well, this is what you ought to be doing. If you're really serious, if you're really fervent, then go above and beyond. Oh, right. It's kind of what can happen when... People come to Jesus, uh, a, a, a new believer, a new disciple, and, and uh, just there's a new lightness in their heart. This is great. I, I know I'm, I belong with God. Uh, this is wonderful. I've got a, a fresh start with him. I've got an eternity to look forward to. This is just mind-blowing. This is wonderful. I feel so, I feel so light. It's like the pressure's come off my shoulders. And, uh, and then they kind of rub shoulders with the experienced, somber Christian. An experienced, somber Christian says, well, oh, that's great. I'm, I'm so, I'm so glad that you've, you've seen the light. I've so, I'm so glad that you've come to faith. Now, there are a few extra things you need to realize, of course, because you're so new to it, aren't you? You're, you're kind of immature in your faith, just a, a little baby. And I'm going to help you come through to maturity. So what you need to do every morning, uh, before anything else happens, is you need to have what's called a quiet time. And in that quiet time, you have to read uh, the Bible. And if you're, if you're serious about being a Christian, you will aim to read the Bible in a year. Uh, and therefore, probably you're going to have to, you're going to have to read quite a number of chapters. Um, so I would say you have to read a psalm. You have to read a bit of the Old Testament and you have to read, uh, some of the Gospels. And, and then what you, you have to do is, uh, you have to pray and, uh, you have to pray for other people. You uh, have to pray to God, you have to pray about other people, and you can pray for yourself eventually. Um, and then 
as you're going about your life, what you have to do is uh, you have to tell people. Uh, you have to tell people about your new faith. And um, you won't find this in the pages of Scripture, but don't let that bother you. What you have to do um, is, is see one person saved a year. That's what you're heading for. Um, but maybe in order to get, get there, there are some other rules. And so uh, that, uh, you have to speak to share your faith with, with one person per week. Um, and so new believers going, oh, I feel so light. And, oh, oh thank, you for, uh, thank you for giving me these extra things to, to carry. And uh, now I'm really going to be uh, mature. And uh, right, what have I got to do next? Um, right, uh, read, quick, just, just read. Read, read. Okay, quick, pray, pray, pray. And, um, oh, I kind of, I hope maybe I'll get around to sharing my faith at some point. Kind of additional rules just get, boom, landed on um, new believers. Uh, the book of Galatians was written to a bunch of believers who perhaps for whom that was an accurate picture of things. They'd, they'd come to faith. They'd experienced salvation. And then other people kind of weaved their way in and... Uh, appearing to be spiritual and mature, we're, we're starting to reel off a list of the things that, well, this is what you should do. This is, these are the musts. These are the ways of relating to God. Bang, bang, bang. Rule, rule, rule. Regulation, regulation, regulation. Are you up to the mark? No, you're still falling short. Well, come on, pull your socks up. And Paul writes to them, and actually in one place it says, what happened to all your joy? The hallmark of being a disciple, vroomf, just got squashed. And so that's that sense of living with additional rules. It can sometimes happen thereby if, if, if we go down that line, we start really kind of comparing ourselves with one another to see how well we are doing. You see, for the disciples of the Pharisees, being a fervent believer, being zealous for God, was all about what you did. And so if we kind of get drawn into that way of thinking, then we're focusing on what we're doing. We're focusing on what other people are doing to kind of measure ourselves up. How well am I doing with God? How, how spiritual am I right now? How is my walk with God? And, um, well, I've not been reading as much of the Bible as that person. I'm not sure I've been praying as much as them. I certainly haven't shared my faith. If someone shares something positive, it sends me down a pan uh, because I, I just can't compete. I can't compare. Oh, rubbish, gloomy, despairing. I better start fasting. Oh, God, come and saw me out. God, come and mend my errors. I'm in despair. Do something. Hang on a minute. It's all got twisted around. Living with additional rules, comparing ourselves with others. Sometimes that can just lead to things like a, a pressure to excel. Well, this is how other people do it. And so I'd, I'd, I'd like to get to know more people in the church. I'd invite them around for a meal. But, oh, do you know what? I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm up to three courses. And uh, do you know what? Put a pizza in the oven and make friends. It's as simple as that. Hallelujah for ovens and pizzas. In a sense of, no, don't let it become a pressure. I've, I've got to do it in this way. I've got, I've got to do exactly how other people have done it. No, they're free to be themselves by the grace of God, and so are you. Don't let your joy get squashed with, oh, keep up appearances. Oh, pressure, pressure, pressure. Just simply, busyness. 
too busy to enjoy God. Always running, feeling like I'm running to catch up, and therefore exhausted, or falling behind, and therefore feeling inadequate. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The absence of a profound joy is, I suggest, due to the fact that we are in too much of a hurry. We are all too busy and too active. If you simply desire spiritual entertainment, you'll not know the joy of the Lord. You'll only be listening to someone else telling you how wonderful it is. We must reflect on these things ourselves. It's that sense of, are we just simply too busy to savour the joy of the Lord? In this kind of busy season, no one at this present time is thinking about anything that happens after the 25th of December, are we? It's like we're kind of anticipating this this time of celebration, but it, it can become a time of pressure of got to do this, got to do this, got to keep up, got to be able to show and demonstrate that we've been having a good time. It's like extra rules have come in. Can you imagine if we did that? There's a new rule in town, you must have fun. Okay, and now we're going to add in loads of extra ways. How do you know you're having fun? Well, you've got to do party games. Um, You've got to kind of entertain and have people over. How do you know you're having fun? Well, you've got to do a day out. You've got to do a a, a kind of winter walk. All these things, oh, really, really? Are you having fun? No, right, Uh, party game. Are you having fun yet? No, something else. Are you having fun? We've got to have fun. We're under pressure to have fun. Oh, really? Ouch. The pressure needs lifting off. And we need time to reflect on the joy of the Lord. These disciples were feasting. They were having a good time. They were spending time with Jesus. Not living with a burden of additional rules. Now Jesus is saying that actually there will be a time for fasting. It wasn't like Jesus was putting a ban on it forever. He's saying, but, but right now, see how he kind of twists it right around. Some people are asking the question, how can it be appropriate that you don't fast? It just doesn't make sense for us. Jesus spins it around and says, how can it be appropriate not to have joy when I am here? Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. Who fasts during a wedding day? If you get invited to someone's wedding, even if you wanted to fast... That's not going to be the time you do it, because it's a time of celebration. Jesus is saying, it's all well and good to pray, oh, let the kingdom of God come, oh, God, do something, do something new, do something fresh. Jesus is saying, I've come. I'm here. The kingdom of God has come. I'm doing something new. There'll be a time to fast when I've been taken away, and there's that hint of where all this tension is building up to. Jesus, is, it, Jesus knows, even at this point, he's going to get taken away. Like, in fact, his contemporary, John the Baptist, was taken away and actually killed. Jesus knew that would happen to him too. There'll be a time for fasting. So there's a time now when we can get before God and say, Oh God, you know, let your kingdom come. Uh, what we see and experience, we're so grateful for. But there must be more than this. But when Jesus was right there, it's like, no, this is awesome. We're spending time with God in the flesh. He's right amongst us. This is incredible. Jesus is saying, look, I'm here. And so he's kind of pointing out, 
this just isn't going to work. Jesus, what I'm trying to do, I'm not just trying to pour something new into this old wineskin. I'm not just trying to stitch something on to this old garment. I'm not trying to patch up these different versions of Judaism. I'm doing something totally fresh. And are you ready to receive what I'm doing, which is totally fresh? That's what he was saying to some people with a genuine question. We're going to see a second question as well. This one was asked by the Pharisees. It's the question of resting. We've had the question of fasting a little bit later on. Let's read again from verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Some people were undecided and genuine. The Pharisees are hostile and a bit angsty. And they're surprised to see Jesus and his disciples picking grain and eating on the Sabbath. Now, again, Jesus is not anti-fasting. He's not anti-Sabbath. He's not against resting. The Pharisees say, well, this is, this is unlawful. Why do they say that? Uh, the law, the Ten Commandments, was given. And we see that in Exodus chapter 20. And, well, what did it actually say? What did God say uh, in Exodus chapter 20? I hope to get there myself sometime. If by magic, hopefully we shall all make it. Um, Exodus 20, verse 8. The God speaking uh, to his people, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall uh, not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the, seventh, uh, the Sabbath and made it holy. There you go. Clear. Clear as day. On the seventh day, rest from your work. Do no labor. And don't start cheating by getting other people to do the labor that you think you should be doing yourself. Everybody, including even your livestock, are resting on the seventh day. And this is a, this is a, a, a rule. This is a law that God was giving. It's also a blessing. He blessed it. This is a gift from God. You don't have to rest. You don't have to work every day. Look, I didn't. And neither do you. But for the legalist, that presents a problem. It presents a challenge. Because in some respects, it doesn't actually quite say enough. Because it raises the question, well, what is work? How do I know if I'm working? And how do I know if I'm resting? If we're going to rest on that day, we really need to make sure we're going to rest. And so over the course of time, other traditions developed. um, Other books containing those traditions with further rules and regulations. And so there were 39 activities that were thought of as being work. And those were the things that you couldn't do. And it was a few of those that the disciples were breaking. Because you weren't allowed to reap. You weren't allowed to pick grain. 
That was one of the ways in which they understood. Okay, what does it mean not to work? Okay, well, we've thought about it for a few centuries now. We've got it down to these 39. Sometimes there's a bit of a debate. Some people might go with 38, and some people might go with 40. But on the whole, a good Jew goes with these 39 things you mustn't do on the Sabbath. And they were probably breaking a a few of them. Picking the grain, rubbing it together uh, to prepare what sounds like a really tasty meal. Um, The odd thing is, another rule on that list of 39 was walking. What? You're not allowed to walk on the Sabbath. Well, you were, but there's kind of, again, there's another rule added to that about how many steps you're allowed to go. So it's all a bit bizarre. Um, Anyway, so here we are, and the Pharisees are, are spotting that Jesus is out in the grain fields with his disciples. Well, this is a Sabbath. How did the Pharisees get there without walking too far? It's like 999,000. We can still see you. Um, stay there till the next day when they can walk again. It's a bit weird. Um, so, anyway, maybe they feel they can break that one because they're trying to catch Jesus out. And so they say, ah, look, you're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. And we kind of see those joy killers again well here's another one where kind of good principles get kind of hardened into laws but with no flexibility so jesus is saying look there's new wine it needs a new wine skin that new wine skin has got flexibility it will it will stretch it will give a bit as that wine ferments a new wine skin can adapt to it the old wineskins already got crusty and hard and rigid and won't shift. Jesus is kind of saying, and that's like you guys, the Pharisees. They'd got all these extra laws and principles that had kind of just got hardened. God said, don't work on the Sabbath. And they've made it into this hard, crusty wineskin with no giving it uh, whatsoever. So actually, it's all a bit ironic. To be a Pharisee would have been really, really stressful on the Sabbath. Because on the day where you're supposed to be resting, you're, try, you're, you're trying to work out how many, how many steps have I taken? Have I done anything that could be constituted work? There's, there's 39 activities that I mustn't do. I think it's just a pressure. It was meant to bless. It was meant to release. It was meant to refresh God's people. You know what? On the seventh day, don't do any work. And it become for them a pressure. Are you resting? What is your Saturday like? It's not a rule. Are you having fun? You must do this and you must do that. No. Actually, what constitutes rest for different people will be different. But Jesus is saying, don't just plow on. You need time. You need time to kind of step aside from that frantic, busied, hurriedness that maybe we all kind of march to, not because God is saying you must do this and you must do that, but because we're kind of just thinking, well, we've got there's loads to do and I need to keep up appearances and this is what the, the good life should look like. So just constantly under pressure. And, well, do you, do you rest? For you, rest might be going on a 50-mile bike ride. For you, rest might be hanging out in a coffee shop. For you, rest might be some really naff film on a Sunday afternoon. I don't know, but... It's important that it doesn't just get overlooked. No, it's more spiritual to be frantic. It's more spiritual uh, to be seen to be doing all of the right things. Coming back to Susie's word from earlier on, it's like God doesn't want robots. God doesn't want 
robots, as it were, just on automatic pilot working through life. I'm really pleasing to God because of what I'm doing and what I'm not doing. I'm not really, I haven't got time to actually spend with God. I haven't got time to reflect on his goodness or the joy that comes our way by virtue of being in salvation. I haven't got time for that. But I know I'm pleasing to God because I'm keeping all these jolly rules. No, 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 no. Jesus is coming, doing something totally fresh. He's saying, look, it's just not compatible. You can't add Jesus in to this old wineskin. It's a totally new deal. And so Jesus takes time to kind of really mess with their heads by reminding them of a situation uh, of David. David is waiting to be crowned. David is wandering around the countryside with his companions. And David and his companions encounter need. They're hungry. Jesus is waiting to be crowned. Jesus is wandering around the countryside with his disciples and uh, actually they encounter a need. They're hungry. It's a Sabbath. Well, yeah, we need to eat. Um, and so Jesus asked, well, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And the scripture says they didn't do something wrong. That's crazy. They're just picking corn in the field. David went and took consecrated bread from the presence of God and got away with it. He broke the law, didn't he? That's what Jesus is saying. He broke the law. But what David has realized and what Jesus knows as well is that kind of these rigid application of law, it's, it's, it's not purpose to kind of overlook real need. You encounter a real need. It doesn't mean, I'm sorry, I can't help you today. I've got to rest. Um, I'd love to kind of spend, you know, it, it just becomes a bit weird. And so it's not saying, you know, treat it flippantly, but there's a flexibility about it. Anyway, let's go on to the third question. The question of healing. We've had some people asking the question of fasting. We've had the Pharisees asking the question of resting. Now we've got Jesus asking the question of healing. It's his turn to ask the question. It's another day in the synagogue. There's a man with a shriveled hand. Um, And this could be a setup in some ways. Maybe not. Um, But what we do know is that some of the Pharisees were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Almost that verse says it all. It certainly says a lot. The Pharisees have already made their mind up against Jesus. Now, having made up their mind, they're looking for the reasons. (laughs) They're looking for evidence will back up what their hard hearts have decided. That's a scary place to be. And uh, some people don't get to that point. Some people are just genuinely spotting the difference and thinking, well, this is quite interesting. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. But sometimes religious people can get caught in this trap, making, them, making their mind up and then looking for the reasons. And it's totally uh, the wrong way around. Anyway, Jesus is not on the defensive. He's not on the back foot. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then he asks the question, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? He puts it in its starkest possible terms. 
And if those guys are going to answer that question genuinely and honestly, they're going to have to change their minds. They would rather not change their minds. Thank you very much. And so they have to remain silent. They won't acknowledge that it is good to heal on the Sabbath. Their frame of mind, their perspective just simply won't allow for it. Their mind is already made up. And therefore the question, which could totally change the way they see life, the world and everything, and how to relate with God, it has the power to cut through and bring them into something new. But it's also got the power just for them to decide instead they're just going to harden their hearts further and dismiss it, walk away. Jesus responds to need. The result, the Pharisees and Herodians form an unusual alliance. They start to plot to kill Jesus. Again, this passage is rich with irony. Jesus is saying, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? What does Jesus do? He does good. He heals. What do the Pharisees do? They start plotting about how to kill and do harm. Grace gets a reaction. It draws people closer and softens our hearts where we experience the joy of knowing Christ and coming into genuine rest. Or grace can cause people to turn away with hardened minds uh, like the Pharisees. Now, maybe for, for many of us here, there might be some who identify with some people. Some people who are just genuinely unsure, interested, but still got questions. Questions are good. Don't stop from asking the question, woe betide us if people feel they can't ask a decent question. Well, why is it? And it can sound, as soon as you ask a why question, it can sound like there's a bit of an edge. Well, there isn't necessarily. Why is it you do this? Why is it you don't do that? Why do you believe this? Brilliant questions. And if you identify with some people, my hope is that at this time, your response today will be, I am going to ask. I am going to find out more. I'm going to keep observing and asking questions. Maybe for some of us, we can from time to time, if not today, or maybe today, identify with Pharisees. We've got some godly principles in mind, but what we really want is everything to be totally, thoroughly nailed down. And the spiritual life has become less about actually knowing God. It's become more about, am I sticking to the rules? How fervent am I? Well, I'm, I'm going to this many meetings a week, and I'm, I'm trying to read that amount of my Bible per day, and I'm trying to witness, and I'm, I'm trying to do this, and I'm trying to do that, but it's just all become dry. And actually, we need to lighten up. We need to do some feasting as well as fasting. We need to do some resting as well as working. We need to do some quality time with Jesus, not just get on some spiritual treadmill. God is interested in the heart. 
And we think, but I can't handle that. I can't see it. It's difficult to evaluate. It's difficult to assess. How am I with God? If I want to answer, answer that question, it kind of pushes me towards thinking, well, yeah, I did raise my hand in worship today. And yeah, I, I've, I've sung out in tongues recently. And, 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 and yes, I've, I've not really shared my faith loads, but I have mentioned that I'm going to church. So that's kind of half a point. Um, it's, we've got to beware. If Paul can write to the Galatians and say, what happened to your joy? Is there any way in which that question resonates with us? What happened to your joy? Because you... You got saved, didn't you? And you got baptized in water. You received the Spirit. And uh, been growing in God. But something happened. Something got in. That caused a kind of a flatness. Now obviously in life there can be loads of things where unforeseen circumstances, real tough challenges. Joy in God is not kind of casual, cheery matiness and just looking on the bright side. Joy in God can be mixed with, with pain and challenge and hardship. But the scripture says, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. Guarding our hearts is so ever, ever so important. That's not kind of do this, do that, do the other. It's make sure you're not falling away from grace. Make sure you're your joy isn't just getting squashed by life or the world or pressure or expectations or additional rules that you have made or society around kind of presents. This is the way you live life. This is the way to show you're a good person. And it just becomes heavy and hard and lifeless. Jesus is saying, no, look, I've got new wine. I'm pouring it into a new wine skin. I've not called you just to that kind of religious lifestyle. Come to me and experience something fresh. Let's pray.